driving Hope comes and stops us in our tracks Bravely we prove in our striving Trudging together each day Everybody and welcome to Raw Recovery, a trudging together podcast. My name is Dion. I'm going to be your host today. Today is our 91st podcast. Our 91st podcast. Um, we've had a lot of stories. We've had a lot of education. Um, but I always like to bring you different types of stories in recovery. You know, I found that um, alcoholism and addiction is a family disease. And there's a lot of times that people in the family that are affected by the alcoholic will get into um, helping others. A lot of times these people have very big servants' hearts. And since this is a family disease, I thought taking on a different perspective today would be great. So I have asked Melanie, and I hope I'm saying your last name correctly, Rapier, yes. on she is the director of the Pueblo Rescue Mission. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Melanie and I have been doing uh, a little bit of talking back and forth, and, and we feel that uh, storytelling and education is, is really important. Um, so the reason that I, and I, I don't want to tell her story, but Melanie does have her own story as to why she is involved with the Pueblo Rescue Mission. So we're going to, um, we're going to listen to Melanie's story today. Um, and this is where I uh, give the show on over. So Melanie, if you want to get started and, and we'll just kind of go from there. Great having you. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I'm sure my story is very similar to some and, and very different to some, but I want to start out and share with you. Um, growing up, I, I grew up with a, a two-parent family initially, but um, it got very dysfunctional very quickly. I had a father who was um, very narcissistic, um, a professional bodybuilder, mm. and um, the, the domestic violence um, that ensued in our home as I was growing up was really okay. rough. And it got it intensified. Um, my mom and dad um, were married. It was my dad's second marriage. My dad kind of developed this pattern of um, creating new families and then leaving okay. and then getting into another family. And looking back, I, I think probably the reason for that was he grew up um, in an alcoholic household. And uh -huh. I think there just wasn't enough love, enough attention. And okay. so I think it definitely um, broke him in a lot of regards. So I, we struggled with that. Um, my mom finally got out of the situation. Okay. But unfortunately, I think what happened, it created kind of um, an enabling heart in her. Because okay. I think she kind of always felt she needed to make up um, yeah. with us kids for the drama, the violence, uh, the negativity. I think as a parent, I would, I would feel that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think we feel guilty even for the things we shouldn't feel guilty for. So when there really is something, yeah. <laughs> it gets and I think she um, was always trying to feel like she had to make up for things. And my dad's, my dad's habits were such that he would go on, get a divorce, create a new family. And then yeah. the families before just kind of fell away. It was kind of like we were disposable. And okay. so I think we all 
kind of process that differently. I know there's a lot of theories and people that talk um, about there being um, placement about children, first child, middle child. Yeah. I don't know that I believe so much in that because I think we're so unique that we all see our family differently. You know, sure. I talk to my own children now and my daughter will say something that was horrible and traumatizing to her. And my son will say, what house did you grow up in? I don't yeah. remember because he perceived it differently. Yeah, it was a different perspective. And you're talking about the dysfunctional family. And sometimes, you know, in a family, you might take on two roles. Right. right. In that dysfunctional family. And so I think that in my perspective, um, my path of addiction or the way it played out for me and how I saw my dad's kind of devaluing of me and the drama and the violence in our household as what about me wasn't good enough that he didn't yeah. want to spend time with me or what made me disposable. And so an addiction plays out in different ways. For me, it played yeah. out um, into a serious, serious issues with food. Um, ah. By the time I was 30, I was probably close to 400 pounds. Okay. And so that was my struggle. I kind of took on eating as a way to, I think, guard myself and provide myself comfort um, that I didn't get, you know, from my household because of all of the chaos. Yeah. And I'd like to let the audience know because we have no camera. Melanie looks healthy, my friends. She she is a great example of looking healthy. So well, great job. You. Congratulations. Thank you. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think my sister, my younger sister Melissa, for her, it played out uh, in a drug addiction. Okay. Um, she was very uh, my dad was very performance based. Um, right. if you were doing good and you were great and you were thin and you were pretty and you were successful and you were all of the things that would mm. make him look better then yep. it was all about you and wanting to have you in his life. But if you weren't, if you weren't great at everything, then um, he just did not have the time or day. And so that weighed heavy on her in, in that mm -hmm. way. And so she started um, drugs at a very early age, about 14. Uh, she started using drugs by the time she was 17. She was fully yeah. blown into heroin. And um, our, wow. our life changed dramatically. Um, yeah. I, I think she is probably the reason why um, my path in life took me through um, through mental health because yeah. I could see all of the things and the dynamics and the brokenness. And I just thought, how do, how do families come from this? How do they resolve it? Yeah. You know, why do people end up in these vicious cycles? Why do people who are beaten as children turn around and become abusers themselves? And then why yeah. do the others, you know, don't do that at all? And so it intrigued me. And so I followed a path of um, mental health professional um, wow. and and just for the last 30 years, I've been in the mental health field, started out as a psychiatric nurse and then moved into um, to becoming a therapist and a counselor um, over the course of that time. And I spent those 30 years, um, almost 30 years in Las Vegas, Nevada, Okay. Um, in the mental health field. OK, yeah. You know, um what we're talking about is breaking those generational cycles. You know, I'm going through that. I'm going through that with my kids too, you know, and you know, cause I wasn't the best, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I wasn't the best example. Um, I'm definitely a better example now, but um, breaking understanding that we can break these generational cycles of anger and, and hate. You know, growing up, um, I didn't get much attention from my dad. If you did something good, you got cash. Yeah. And I, I 
I, to this day, I'm not about money. Well, you know me well enough. I, I don't care about money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and you know, it's it's funny, and I think my, and my mom was that same way. Um, let's go shopping. What can we do to suit this week? Let's yeah. go out to eat. Let me write you a check. Let's go buy some clothes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we'll go to the large size ladies store because, you know, you're you're barely even fitting into those clothes. But let's yeah. ask what the issue is and not talk about the problem. And let's just go get you something. Yeah, it's a uh, well, you know, we kind of I grew up in a, you know, we sweep things under the rug kind of a situation. We don't talk about those things. Yes. Um, and even when my mom did get sober, she got sober when I was 14. Um, we had a family meeting and that was the last family meeting we ever had because it just, you know, my brothers and my sisters couldn't handle it. Right. They couldn't under, they couldn't handle the separation and the divorce. Um, it came to me and I told them you two are miserable. Um, I'm glad you're splitting up because you're making the rest of us miserable. Yeah. I was like you know, that too. Yeah. I kind of saw things for what they were. Um, you know, and I thought I was honest, but I was being kind of brutally honest. I wasn't being very nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it's funny. You see these TV shows and these movies and lifetime things where a couple's getting divorced and they say, OK, let's like sit our children down and let's talk about it because you don't want it to be dramatic and you're afraid what's going to happen. And then I watch shows like Intervention and I kind of see where these people spiral out of control and what yeah. started these. And it always almost seems like it starts with there was a divorce and i thought yeah. to myself that I, that's very um that's very strange to me because i remember when my mother told me i felt a weight lift off of me that yeah. was actually physical the fact that they were not going to have this toxic thing going on where yeah. my dad would lock me out of the house so he could beat the hell out of my mother while i stood outside yeah. and listened to her scream it's a relief yes it is it, it is. was for it was for me too um because they were creating a chaos in the family that just wasn't fair to everybody. No, no. And, you know, but at the same time, the only way I knew how to get that across was anger um, because that's what I was taught. So I used my skills. And because of that, my parents, um, you know, tough love was big at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, they put me in Mount Airy Psychiatric Center and I never went back home because oh, wow. of my behavior. Oh, wow. Um um that helped me but it hurt me so right a double-edged sword like a lot of things exactly so yeah. so in vegas did you grow up in vegas is that kind of why you did most of your work there no you know i grew up in um southern california okay and um we well, bodybuilding uh, yeah huh? okay yeah, and so we were in southern california and then um i got married and my husband got offered a job working um, in one of the casinos in Las Vegas where he okay. was going to be working, doing surveillance cameras and putting stuff together in the casinos. Ooh, that so they, actually sounds kind of fun. Yeah, they set up the <laughs> eye in the sky actually for a company called Station Casinos. No. So um, I didn't even want to go because I was born and raised in California. My family sure. was there, but yeah. we went and um, it was actually great. Once I got to Vegas and got roots and started doing things, you couldn't, couldn't drag me away. In fact, I can't believe a lot of my friends are like, we can't believe you're in Colorado that you, you stayed. But um, I was it was life changing and it was great to be there. There's a lot of stuff going on in Las Vegas. Um, I, I had a set of twin girls that were born and passed away okay. in Las Vegas. And then I had a second set of twins that were born in Las Vegas that um, I raised there. And um, one of my sons actually kind of kept me in the psychiatric field. 
he was diagnosed with um, Asperger's. And so okay. we found out very young that he was on the spectrum. And that kind of pushed me more into the psych field of like yeah. behavioral behavioral medicine and trying to you know see what developmental delays and things like that looked like. So I became a huge advocate uh, alongside a behavioral pediatrician who was out of the University Medical Center there in Las Vegas. And I worked for her and managed her practice. And I served as a um, IEP advocate. So what okay. I used to do is I used to go to the schools, elementary and junior and high schools, alongside parents. And I yeah. would sit there and advocate and pound my fist on the desk for the things that yeah. their children yeah. needed that teachers yeah. were oblivious to. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Well, you know what? I, I, I'm going to thank God that you're here in Colorado because, you know, we need a lot. We need a lot more of that and the understanding. Um, do you mind if I ask, um, you know, Melanie, you kind of could have gone anywhere you kind of wanted. Why did you, what, why did you go with Pueblo Rescue Mission? Well, I'll tell you, I was living in Las Vegas and I was divorced and um, my children had told me, my adult twins, my son and daughter said, you know what, you need to get in a relationship. You need to find somebody. So we, <laughs> we actually were at a mental health conference in Anaheim, California for a week. And they came with me. They didn't come for the conference. They came because they knew I was going to take them to Disneyland. But, um, so I came back to the hotel one day and my son says, okay, we built a profile for you, a dating profile on eHarmony. Uh, I said, what, what? what? And they said, yes let us show you. So they showed me and I'm reading it. And I said, I would never say any of those things. That is absolutely ridiculous. So they said, well, let us fine tune it a little bit. So they did. And I was in and out of that hotel room for that week going to sure. conferences. I came back one day and they said, mom, you have a smiley face. Somebody's interested. And I said, oh, okay. So I said, let me see who this person is. So they show me and it shows somebody in Pueblo, Colorado. And I said, why would you guys, how did you connect me? To, we live in Nevada. And they said, well, mom, you got to broaden your horizons and go, you know, out of the States. If you want to find yeah. a really good catch, you can't just look in Las Vegas. So I said, okay. So weeks turned into months, you know, months turned into more months. And, and I'm kind of dating long distance, this individual who's born and raised in Pueblo, Colorado. And yeah. it actually turned out to be a good thing. And we spent we we logged a lot of miles on Frontier, flying yeah. back and forth the other weekend, you know, to see each other. And oh wow! I said, um, "You guys are getting ready to go to college. I want to start my life." So, um, yeah. my, my husband now said, "You put resumes in Colorado and Pueblo here, and I'll put some out in Las Vegas. The person who gets the job offer first wins." And I said, "Okay." So that's why I got <laughs> to Pueblo. <laughs> And you won. <laughs> I won, yeah, yeah. So I came here in 2016, okay. and I started working as a parole case manager when I got here. And okay. I moved from there to Parkview Hospital, and I was working as a mental health therapist on a locked psych unit. And that okay. was okay, and it was challenging, but oh, yeah. I, was, I was really missing those long-term relationships because this was just about stabilizing folks within five days and getting yeah. them back out and then the you street. never see them again it's yeah, a, it's or, like or they're a revolving door because you see the same ones over and yeah. over you really never sure get do. it so i thought i'm going to leave here because i want to build some long-standing relationships yeah. so i can see the the benefit of the therapy i'm providing yeah so i made the decision um to move and leave there and go to the department of corrections yeah, wow. and do therapy and um 
it was a lot of things. It was eye-opening. It was soul-crushing. It, it was difficult for me because yeah. I didn't understand the environment. I don't think anybody does till you get in there. Exactly. Um, it, it's very yep. punitive, and um, it's a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And I get it. I get it that you can't give one person something you don't give another. And yep. It's about firm, fair, and consistent. But they yep. don't all need the same thing. You know, Correct. a sex offender doesn't need the same thing as somebody who's been, you know, incarcerated for drug use you know majority of their life and so i felt really uh disenchanted that i couldn't provide um yeah. unique therapy that they all needed and i came home every day just depressed that i i wasn't making a difference yeah and i came home one day and i saw an ad for a executive director for the pueblo rescue mission and i yeah. thought i can go there and think outside the box and yep. really try to put together some support systems for people based on what they need. And I don't have anybody telling me that that is, you know, a violation of the administrative policies. Yeah, the exactly. Exactly. So I interviewed and I thought, you know, I don't know anything about the nonprofit world. Maybe the things I know about mental health and, and the things I've been through in my life will be enough to fill in those gaps. And yeah. I was rudely wrong but I'm learning. I'm a, I'm a work in progress and I'm learning, but I, I decided, they decided to take a chance on me. The board brought me in and um, I sat back for a little while trying to get my sea legs. Sure. And very quickly, I saw this revolving door of yep. people coming in and out, the same people yeah. and nothing really changing. Yeah. You know, uh, and and so, asking for help. They want help. They do. They do. They I just would... don't know what kind, they don't know what kind or how to get yeah. it or... or we don't have the resources that's exactly when i was working at detox i'm not going to mention the detox because it doesn't matter but i didn't have you know the only thing we i had money for was shipping people out of state yeah yeah that's it i didn't have money for treatment i didn't have money for sober living uh there are no halfway houses which i think we're we really need some halfway houses. We need yeah. reintegration living. Yeah. Um, I've been homeless twice myself. Once when I was 18, um, I went through a place called the Phoenix concept and I understand homelessness. I, know, I understand what it's like. Right. Um, you know, and your day is mandated by other people. Um, but really it's about the resources and, and what we have um, and what we can utilize. And unfortunately, we don't have it right you know we're more concerned about opening up rcos and day centers we don't need any we don't need any more day centers we need halfway houses yeah we um, and that's what i really like what you've done is you are meeting the needs of the people and you're asking you're asking them what they need instead of assuming what right. they need well, like I said, they've all got those unique experiences and that's what I, I kind of want to provide. When I when I sat back and looked, I thought, okay, this really comes down to unstable, unstabilized or undiagnosed mental illness, yep. uh, addiction, and poor, poor financial management. Oh which, yeah. Which comes obviously from mental illness and from addiction, but it also comes from generational poverty and growing up oh, in yeah. a household where um, you don't think it's strange to go to the loafing jug and buy groceries. Yeah. You know, just you did it. Your mom did it. Maybe your grandma did it. And so I grew up, I wasn't in generational poverty, but my parents also had a, um, a catering business with catering trucks. So they had cash in hand every day. And okay. they, 
did so irresponsibly. I remember when I was five or six, we lived in a small duplex in Los Angeles, and my parents spent like $1,200 to buy a velvet couch because they just <laughs> had the cash right there on hand. They just, they didn't say, they didn't have bank accounts, you know, and so I learned to, that's how money was modeled for me. Yeah, yeah. I struggled for years learning how to budget and how to take care of my money, so I knew those were the three core yeah. issues. But you, but you probably always had a nice couch. Yeah, I probably, yeah, I did, I did. In fact, I ended up marking on that couch with markers, so that oh, probably oh, was really oh. a horrible investment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so shame on them, right? So That's right. With your house. Don't fill it with velvet couches. So I thought I'll just gonna I'm gonna put a program together that's gonna address these three core issues yeah. because these are the things that have to happen. And and I hear a lot of people talk in this community and others about shorting uh, shortages of housing. There's no housing. There's no housing. And I agree to some extent in a lot of areas and people I know who make those same complaints. But it doesn't sure. matter because if right. you can't stabilize people, they'll never sustain it. So it doesn't matter Correct. if you have housing right now or not. You have to stabilize them first. Yeah. You know, and so and so we we started this program and it addresses those three core issues. We've okay. got recovery groups going. We've got mental health groups going. We even have some social groups going because this yeah. population they get isolated. They get very unsocial. And yeah. they, they need to learn how to reintegrate, how to exist. In, and we're not meant to do life alone. And so it's awkward yeah. when they first come in. They don't feel very open. They kind of feel strange. They're sitting in an art therapy group and they don't know these other people. Yeah. But they, they learn to grow and they learn to talk with each other and share experiences. And they learn how much more alike they are than they are different. And that's the great thing about groups is groups gives you a kind of a, a nice way to be able to slowly open and let your guard down yeah. and share and hear what other people have to say. And it's also a great way. It's also a great, um, I think, a, a measuring stick for like your own progress. Yes. Because I think when you're in a group, I remember um, I had twin daughters that passed away and my doctor wow. referred me to an infant loss support group. And when I went probably the first couple months, they had this routine of going around the table and introducing your name and talking about your child or your children and what happened. Okay. And it took me more than two months to be able to even speak my name. I sure. couldn't do anything but sob. And my yeah. husband would have to introduce both of us. And then as the months passed, you know, you, I open up and I sit and I'm listening to other stories. Pretty soon a year passes and I see a couple come in and her face is swollen and her eyes are yeah. and she can't even say her name and I'm talking and I I can look across the table and say wow yeah. I remember when that was me yeah so groups do that for you and so I absolutely I, I love groups in that regard so we put all these groups together and CBT groups and DBT yeah. DBT is big because I think um you know learning to regulate your emotions and also impulse control are huge reasons for yeah use drugs it, it, it's funny because aa is cbt dbt with god right, right i mean that's all aa really is 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 re reframing that mind mm -hmm. um you know and the actions that i take and that takes a lot of practice yeah and so i need to repeat um and that's why i need my peers yeah, you know exactly. um i believe in peer-to-peer -peer. i believe it's the number one way I believe recovery is free. Uh, you know, um, I believe in equity, recovery equity. And that's why I love the Pueblo Rescue Mission so much. 
because it wasn't about individualizing, but what you did was create groups that were the right arenas for the right people. You said, oh, what's the need here? And that's what I'm kind of doing up north here. You know, I opened up an AA club where there's no AA. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no other AA in like 12 miles around, right. you know, and it's about finding the need. Um, you know, we use peer supports um, from different organizations. Plus, my staff does groups and that's pretty much not a requirement, but I'm lucky and I'm thankful that our staff have turned out to be people with some of the most amazing lived experiences. And yeah. so um, when you when you have experiences like that, you have street cred. When I was trying to do groups yeah. in, the, in the prisons, uh, they didn't really want to know a whole lot from me about different things until I started to share. When I started to share different yeah. things about my life and my experiences, um, that was helpful. But, you know, one of my guys, uh, Dave, he works for me. And Dave spent almost two decades in prison. He was a biker and a methamphetamine producer and a very mm -hmm. violent, aggressive man. And then yep. he got out and he found Christ and he was born again and he reintegrated back into his life and his family. And he married an amazing woman who's a school teacher here in Pueblo West. And he's got almost two decades now of sobriety under his belt, but he knows exactly what it's like. So when he comes yeah. into the group, he's got street cred. Exactly. And they love him for it. So those are the folks that we're always looking for to come in. And I share, I, I brutally share, I share things about, you know, we had a CBT group not long ago. And we were talking about stinking thinking and how your your thoughts can derail you because your yep. thoughts aren't facts. And I was sharing a story about my own son who I thought was um, either dead on the road or he was ignoring me. And by the time the night got over with, I was so panicked. I told him, you come get all your crap out of my basement. If you can't be a decent kid and return my text messages. And then I get a text message from him that says, I was working. He works in a prison where he can't use his phone. Yeah. And he said, I was on a double. My phone was in the car. I couldn't call you. And so, you know, in, in DOC, you can't share those kinds of things because they don't want no, to you share family or anything. But here no. I am with you know, my resident saying, listen, you're not the only one that gets crazy like this. I go off the rails and yep, I, have I do too. To me too. I am yep. imperfect and I am broken. And there is no shame in that. And I think that's right. the one thing I do. We do not operate from shame at the rescue mission. It is it is more damaging than drug addiction. Shame. Oh, the, the stigma that can come behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just like in AA, there's nothing worse than uh, a recovering alcoholic that hates alcohol. Right. Yeah. You, know, you can't. You know, uh, I mean, we grew we grew up with Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny would tell us things like fight fire with fire. And right. he was wrong. Right. You can't fight. You know, when people say fight stigma, I'm like, you've lost. You've already right. lost because you can't fight it. You've got to come into it. It's, it's like water flow. You've got to come into agreement with it or you're never going to be able to educate. Exactly. And so we work really hard at the mission to do things like promote accountability and transparency. Yeah. You know, um, one of my heroes and a lady I love a great deal is Brene Brown. And she yep. talks about being accountable and being able to own and share your story. Because if yep. you can't do that, then you have to walk outside of your story and hustle for your own worthiness. And that's I don't right. want that for any of our residents. No. So that's a hard piece. If anything ever gets somebody exited or causes them to leave our program prematurely, it's that accountability piece. Yeah. And so it is. 
that happens. And and that's true of anybody that wants to change. Uh, accountability is the number one thing in recovery. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how long I've been sober. I'm accountable. I have a sponsor. I go to the same meeting so people see my face. I do the same thing so that people know that I'm there. And if I'm not, I will hear about it. Yep. Yep. Someone's gonna someone's gonna uh, take you to the take you to the woodshed and. Yeah. What <laughs> and are, What you. are some of the ways in the groups that you kind of show accountability for for people that are homeless? Well, when we when you come into the program, you get set up on a unique program um, curriculum that's based on your life experience, what you okay. need um, when you share your story and you talk about whatever legal issues you faced, your substance use, your mental health, any kinds of traumas, and we try to have a lot of trauma-informed care going on, your program is set up specifically for you. And then you're accountable mm -hmm. to be in those groups. You come in, you sign in, we keep track, okay. but you're accountable to be in all those groups and, and to show up and to be present. And um, we also have um, social groups that are set up and we have chores and we try to create an environment where they kind of learn to accept a greater sense of like civic responsibility. So they care about yeah. where they live. They care if it's dirty outside. And it's interesting when they come in from, we call the folks that live in our program residents. And then yeah. the folks that don't live with us who just come and get resources or just come for emergency shelter, we call them outreach. And okay. once they come into the program, outreach folks will come and maybe get a meal and they, they might just throw their containers on the ground or just kind of not be mindful about stuff. Man, yeah. our residents are all over that. They get so infuriated when someone has <laughs> their community. You know, yeah, it is. That um, gets fostered by those programs. The the neat thing is, yeah, I had told you that I, I, I went through a program called the Phoenix Concept and it's, mm -hmm. it's government run now, so it's not the same. But we were a bunch of skid row drunks and we paid our own rent. We paid our, we were self-sufficient. We were accountable. We had in-house meetings and this was true sober living and nobody had a job. None of us had a job. What we did is we made uh, piggy banks and in fact, those plaques on my wall I made when I was 19. Oh, wow. but, um, and then people would come in and give donations for the things that we made. And that's how we paid our rent. Wow. wow. Um, when you give the homeless a chance in a community, they will do something beautiful with it. They will. They will. They will. And they, they surprise, all time. Yeah, they surprise me all the time. They just, um, and like I said, they, they, the good thing about having that program and the fact that I also still do emergency shelter is that um, I want everybody to want better and to want to come in and stabilize. But that's sure. just, that's not the reality. There are always going to be those service resistant individuals for whatever reasons that just don't want it. But, you know, we live in an environment where it gets cold and I'm never going to want to punish somebody because they don't want more for their life like I want for them. But, yeah, I, I agree. You know, um, you know, I don't think it's up to me to determine somebody else's willingness. No, and I think one good thing about this program is that at least every week, one or two people will kind of see that program because yeah. they're kind of coexisting in the same building. And they'll say, how do you get back there where those lockers are? Exactly. They'll start kids. to wonder. Right. Yeah. And I say, well, that's a program. And I kind of use that program and I think of it as luring injured birds in with crumbs. I can get you in the door. 
you yeah. know, to see that this is possible, maybe you will want more. And so exactly. at least every week, in fact, the most women we've ever had in our program since I've been here was um, 12. And wow. we just don't, yeah, women, we tend to shelter more men than we do women in our program. Okay. Um, as of this week, we have nine. We've brought in four women just this week that crossed wow. over from outreach and said, I've had enough of that. And yeah. I can't put the rigors of living outside anymore, waiting yep. until 9 p.m. when I can come in here with you. I'm ready to do this. Yeah. And so I, I'm always going to want to do both because yeah. you're going to find yourself in different places. And I, I, my biggest why is um, my sister, Melissa, died of a heroin overdose at the age of 35. And she yeah. was homeless. And um, she left behind a 15-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. And oh. her addiction just it fractured our family. It made yeah. everything 10 times worse for everybody. And so um, when I'm making decisions like that about, should we even do emergency shelter? Should we do this? Should we just be all about a program? I try to think about creating a place and a space that I know if Melissa knocked on the door, that she'd yeah. be welcome. Yeah. So she's my why. She's the reason why when I say, you know what, we got to, I don't care if they just threw that food at the window. We've got to yeah. try to find a workaround to give some people some grace, you know, so that the Melissa's of the world, you know, have a place to go. Yeah, can make it too, you know, and how powerful that peer, that peer to peer is. Yeah. That's exactly what you're doing. And, you know, it's a very, very lonely disease. And, um you always feel like you're on the outside it doesn't matter what other people do you still feel like you're on the outside so when you can be around other peers that are like you that say things like oh you know i know you did that but so you know it doesn't matter i still love you exactly you know what we're doing is we're holding space for them yeah and that is one of the most powerful ways to encourage other people you know uh, people tend to think that the homeless, that their number one priority is putting a roof over their head. And that's not true. The homeless just want another person that cares. Exactly. You know, I, when we talk about, um, I think the community is guilty uh, to a great degree of um, when my sister passed away, um, she just she she wreaked havoc on everybody. But we were at sure. her funeral and we had done a little photo montage set to music. And her son was very stoic, very guarded, very angry, and just kind of really didn't show a lot of emotion. Yeah. And midway through this video, there was a photo we had put in the slideshow of her pushing his bicycle when he was like five, trying to teach him to ride a bicycle. And then all of a sudden, he just broke down. And so after the service, I talked to him and I asked him what that was about. And he said he had been so ravaged by the addiction and all of the yeah. horrible things that it cost them that it made him totally forget that at one point she had been a mom who yeah. tried to teach him to ride a bike. And so yeah. I think that's what happens. I think a lot of people are in the community are guilty of um, not thinking and realizing these are moms and brothers and sisters and yeah, children who had lives and they're productive people that have so much to contribute, but they're being kind of pigeonholed into this one issue yeah. or problem that they have and nobody can see past it. And, and they're dealing with something beyond their control and it takes a tribe. It doesn't yes. matter who it is. We don't do this alone. I've never seen anybody make it by the unaided will. Um, and there's there's a lot of different paths. Um, so yeah, you know, for me, I, I do a lot of the same thing. I meet people where they're at. 
I figure out what's going on and then I send them to what's going to be best for them. Yeah. You know, I even do that with sponsorship. Um, I let my sponsors know, Hey, if I am not good for you or you ain't feeling it, tell me. Right. And I will find you another sponsor. Right. Cause it's not about me. Right. I, it's already, it was already about me. I don't need any more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any more. I think the same thing about therapy too, because therapy has to be a click, you know, and I'll tell people if you, if I'm not it, you know, and this hour is up and you feel like it was pulling teeth and you're like, oh, I got to get out of this therapy session, then maybe I'm, I'm just not for you, you know, and I don't want exactly. you to hacking stuff. But if you're in here and I'm like, okay, time's up. And you're like, already, that's it. Then yep. I'm probably your gal. That's it. Yeah. Um, you know, it could be, it could be tough sometimes, but I'm, I got to do what's, what's right by the person and not what's right by me. And since I've done the work and I've gotten to that place um, and it was freely given to me, then I freely give it away. Right. So. I like to think too, that the mission is um, like you talked about needing more halfway houses. That's actually what a lot of the parole officers that I work with, because we, we work with, um, with uh, reentry. And so I talk to DOC pretty much every week they'll put me on a zoom call with an offender who's going to be releasing and they can't release homeless. They have to go to a sober living or a halfway house or yeah. a program. And yep. there, there's always waiting lists for those. And and sober living can cost you an arm and a leg. And sometimes half the time you get there, there's full, they're full of drugs and addiction and you, they're just not healthy yep. sometimes. And so, um, Parole loves that that we do this program, and I they kind of liken what we do to a halfway house. You know, there's some accountability. We do some random drug testing, and we kind of know where everybody is, and everybody's accountable. And we have curfews. Yeah. You know, yeah. but we don't charge for this program, and and I have to rely on funding and getting the word out there. You know, and trying to find every grant I can scrape together to to apply for whatever money I can get. Yeah. In fact, when I do those Zoom calls with the offenders, I'll tell them about the program, and they'll say. How much is the monthly fee for your program? And I say that's there's it. no fee. Free. That's what Free. I you know, when I went into the Phoenix concept, it cost me nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I absolutely I had we won't get into sober living today, but please, if you're gonna get into sober living, please vet it or please call me first and yeah. I will tell you. Yeah. Because it's unregulated along with recovery coaching. So please just be very careful, is what I'm gonna say on that. Oh yeah. Um yeah. But I do agree on the fact that we need more halfway houses because what was going on is when I was at detox, these people would come in and they're willing to get sober. They're willing to get help. Right. But my only outlet was sober living. Well, this person's been living on the streets for 10 years. Yeah. They don't know how to work. They don't. So it's a setup. Yep. It's a total setup. And it what is. happens is then that person gets body brokered. And I cannot be a part of that. I, I won't be a part of it. So now that. my resources become limited. Yes. And then what happens is that makes every sober living, every RCO guilty until proven innocent because right. of the way it's going. And it's unfortunate, but right. it's the way it is. And I think we, with our programs too, we, um, we try to, have them stay and go through this program and you could stay as long as it takes to get through to get everybody's hold that they dig is deeper than other people's. So you sure. might be 
I've had school teachers and attorneys come and stay in this program and they're in and out of here in three or four months. And I have some who are still here and it's 14 months later because they've got a different set of circumstances and they've got a a longer period of recovery. But my hope is that you come through this program and you get what you need from us and we continue those wraparound services when you leave. You don't need to transition from here into a sober living. You transition into permanent housing, independent housing. That's the goal. That is, yeah. Because it does make a di- it does make a difference, and you know, even if a person the way I am, even if a person is drinking or drugging, I'm still a housing first person. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that when it's your own roof, thing they can change. They may not, but that doesn't mean I want them. To, that doesn't mean just because they have a mental illness does not mean that they have to be out on the street. That I, those should not be combined. Um, and you know, I love helping people, but I'm also the kind of person where, you know, you know, how am I going to clean up, go help somebody clean up their backyard if mine's a mess? Well, guess what, Colorado, our backyard's a mess. So let's stop helping everybody. Let's help ourselves. And that way we can help everybody even more. Yeah, I agree with you. We, We need to take care of business at home first. And, um, and fix a lot of things, especially mental health. I, I'm such an advocate, and not only because that's the chosen field, mental health affects everybody and everything. You know, I, yep. we all have our own personal opinions. I do not believe personally that we have a gun control problem in this country. We have a mental health problem in this oh, country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, teaching, we're teaching math and we're teaching all of these different things in school. It's mandatory if you have to have these many years of math and this many years of civic and history, but you don't have to have any mental health. Yeah. And mental health is important. We've got to do something about it. And addiction too, people say, well, what about addiction? Well, I'll tell you what, your addiction issues are stemming from mental health and people who are self-medicating their brokenness. Yeah. Well, and when we take our abatement money and give it all to sober living instead of doing prevention programs for our schools, I mean, I was pretty upset by that. Because yeah. I went to go get prevention money. They're like, oh, we gave it all this sober living. I'm like, what did they have to do with abatement? Yeah, I hear you. But yeah, I know. They're not going to answer that question. So, no. um, <laughs> <laughs> no so <comment. laughs> you, um, so uh, Pueblo Rescue Mission is going to start their own podcast. Tell us yes. a little bit about that. What are your ideas? What are your thoughts? What, 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 what would you like that to look like? Well, one of my big things is um, I want to do whatever education I can to um, kind of shift the narrative. Um, One of the biggest problems I run into when I go and speak um, at different groups or clubs or organizations, um, they'll ask me questions at the end about things like, why do you let your people uh, panhandle? Why do you let your people do this? And I think people are so miseducated and they they misunderstand. that there are many sects of homelessness people. There are people who are mentally ill. There are people who are um, in active addiction. There are people who do panhandle, but there's a whole different population out there. But the bottom line is every single one of them, good, bad, whether you like the addict or you don't, or whether you don't Mm -hmm. approve the panhandler, they have a unique story that brought them to that place. And so educating people about those stories and having people understand where people are coming from, yeah. um, I think is important. So I like to go yeah. and I like to talk about that. I We have a lot of success stories. Probably in the last year and a half, we've had probably close to 100 people 
come through the program, get employed or, or get a stable income for themselves and then um, move out and go yeah. back into the world. And I've had very few using housing vouchers. The majority of them are folks who are just um, out there paying market yeah, value. Rent a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them go back to get jobs. They just needed. Um, it's like uh, uh, Step Denver here. They're they're saying used to be we're a hand up, not a hand out. Right, right. And I, and, I firmly believe that. Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a it's a great program. It's a reintegration program. Uh, reintegration is the only really type. Well, we should have, but uh, <laughs> because everybody kind of needs it. So that'd be neat. Yeah. Educating people on why people are homeless and interviewing um, those people. I'd like to have those people on our podcast. Yeah. And then some of the success stories that come right. on, tell us how they did it. Right. And the ones that are even still in the trenches now that are maybe just oh, absolutely. The program or halfway through it so that they can share what this experience is like, because a lot of them have a lot to say about the resources that were out there that they did not need and could care less about and the resources yep. they needed that they could not find. That's right. That's right. And when you go into somewhere like detox and you ask for resources and they hand you a piece of paper and tell you to make phone calls, that is yeah. not a resource. That right. is laziness. And then half of those places you call no longer exist. or They don't exist. Or, yeah, because yeah. nobody's keeping track and everything's yeah. unregulated. Yeah. So we do a really neat thing every year since i came into the mission we host um in april it's called the um, summit on homelessness so we kind of try, try to change the theme every year last year the theme was um um success stories so what we did was we brought all of our residents at the mission who are in varying stages of the program yeah, and we brought idea. all social yeah. service organizations in pueblo and we sat one of our residents at every table and it was kind of like a speed dating thing we let them sit there for five minutes and those organizations got to fire off questions about you know what did you get that you didn't need what did you need that you didn't get what brought you to homelessness how did this happen to you and oh, then we would go up and they'd have to switch and go to another table and hear somebody else's well, that's those story. are those are great out of the box thinking utilizing Utilizing peers is always, wow, those are some great ideas, Melanie. So that was last year. This year, the theme is called Resources 101. So okay. we believe, you know, that resources like the ones you and I have been talking about have the power, you know, to renew and transform and restore. And so we're again inviting all those agencies to come and they're okay. all going to get a chance to present what they do, how they do it, where they do it and share their resources and i think that will help in some ways to maybe stave off and reduce some of the duplication of services we have because yep. you know, we're doing budget binding and we're teaching people how to manage their money if somebody else comes to this summit stands up and has a whole financial empowerment program i may stop doing that you know and farm it out to them and well exactly yeah and a part of, yeah i'm always looking for because we can't do it all ourselves right uh -uh. Right. Like running my run my running the the AA club. No, I need help. I can't do that myself. Not only that, but you don't want to. It's no fun. Right. It kind of burns you out faster. Yeah. Too. I mean, part of part of doing this is having that community feeling and knowing, you know, yeah. because we're the type of people that like to go to bed at night knowing I got something accomplished in my yes. community today. I feel that's like what makes yeah happiness isn't my goal. Doing a good job is. Yeah. 
So the benefit of this, um, this summit is at the end, we're going to make sure we have a scribe there and everyone's going to be filling out a worksheet about their organization and their resources. Everybody okay. who attends is going to get a spiral bound directory book of all of the stuff they heard those people present that day and the things that they do and who you call for that resource and right. what event we have coming up so that they'll have that directory to use at least for the rest of the year. Things change so much, you know, yeah. it'll probably be good for, you know, at least the rest of the year, but at least everybody will have a go-to place to, to refer people to that's, for some stuff. That's that they exactly know what we need. And if we could get that online to where uh, um, it all needs to stop being competitive and we all yeah. need to come together and start working together. And anybody that thinks recovery is competitiveness, can can you please just get out? I know, I know. Um, we you know I, we, you know we don't we don't that. need it. We've got plenty of people with servants' hearts. Yeah, we do. I, I think probably a little bit of what contributes to that, and I see that too in you know the community we live in, is I don't necessarily think that people are siloed so much or they're kind of disconnected because of competition. I think part of it is. They just we're disconnected because we have differences in philosophies on how we think it's the best way to help people. And it's just sad because it doesn't yeah. have to be that way. We we need all of those philosophies because we have we to do. know where they're at and they're in a million different places. And that's it. And considering I don't follow every philosophy, it's back to that. Well, Melanie follows that philosophy, so I can send this person over there. Right. And that's right. what we're talking. And that's the camaraderie that we're talking about, that it's OK to be different. Yes. It's OK to, to be different. We can still collaborate, even though we don't agree, because there's going to yeah. be somebody that crosses my path that I can't do anything for. And I'm going to need you to be there so I can mm -hmm. send them to you so you can give them what they need. That's it. You know, and sometimes, you know, that's what my lives are about. I go live and so that we can have harder discussions, you know. Right. Because my my experience is my experience, and that's fact. But your experience may be different, and that is fact also. Right. You know, and it worked for you. So when we give people choices, man, yeah, they love it when they get options. Yes, yes. So, Melanie, this has been fantastic. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Me too. This is um, great. With you, not to you. I apologize. Okay. Talking at you. <laughs> <laughs> um is there a link or anything to the uh april event do you have anything yet um i will have it probably tomorrow will be on our website and people can go on and register um okay. and it's at our our um org. it should okay. be up there tomorrow it's april 5th it's going to take place on a friday in the afternoon Okay. But everything will be up there and people can register. I would, of course, it's you know going to be about the social service agencies coming and presenting what they do. But I'm also encouraging people in the community to come because we have a lot, like you said, servants' hearts and people that aren't people that aren't in this um, in this field, but they still run into people and they want to be yeah. able to point people like, in the right direction. Yeah, you're talking about me. Yeah. And there are, there are people like I get it all the time. People will call and say, um, well, they used to send people over here to see if they would buy them bus tickets to leave town. And they call that agency and it's closed. And OK, well, come to this summit and listen to what's going on right now and where they can find it. And you can yeah. point people in the right direction all day long just by exactly. coming and listening to what, what they do. Yeah. And what's great about that is we can trust we can trust those resources because they're backed by Pueblo Rescue Mission. And there's a there's a trust that goes with that. 
And I appreciate you taking that time in the community to build that trust first. That is something I noticed. Thank so, you. Thank you very much. You. Um, I will make sure that information, if it if it's ready tomorrow, I'll make sure it goes up. This will be going out on Friday. Okay. Um, wow, what a great conversation. I'm really looking forward. Uh, Melanie, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrapped up? You know, I think the one thing I just want to make sure is that everybody realizes and recognizes that we can help in so many ways. I get that the program seems daunting for some. I get that some think they're above or better than emergency shelter, but yeah. everybody gets to choose. This is free will, and there's something at our shelter for everybody. Maybe you'll stay with me. Maybe you won't. Maybe yeah. you'll just come to my programs and not stay with me at all. Or maybe you'll come full bore and enter the program. There are so many different ways and options we can help you. And you can start down one road and change your mind anytime. There's, yeah. there's so much there to help people. We just really want to help people. That's it. Wow. Great stuff. So uh, for my listeners, thank you so much. Thank um, you. Yeah, I have, I have fantastic listeners. And and anybody that has any questions with anything that we talk about, please feel reach, uh, feel free to reach out to me. If you'd like to talk to Melanie, um, I will get you her information. You can always call uh, the phone line. She is very busy. So, um, you know. <laughs> you can email me, though, all day long. I, I, oh, there we go. Email. So I'll make yeah. sure that the email is in there. Yeah, for sure. So, um uh, this podcast was a little different. Uh, next week we will have uh, we will be back to storytelling. Um, I have another uh, podcast coming up next week. Uh, to all my listeners, um, you know, everything that we do and everything that we we touch needs to have some kind of action or intent behind it that is good. So while we're out there with our serpents' hearts doing what we're doing. Let's always remember uh, to check our intentions. Are we, or what are we trying to get out of it? Are we trying to help people? Are we trying to brag? Are we, you know, what are we, what are we actually doing with it? And then let's take that information, be honest with ourselves. Um, thank you everybody for being here. I love you. You know, I do. Peace out and have a day.